Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Oh, hello. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we have a returning guest to the show. Tanner Greer was on the podcast last year. We had a a fascinating discussion about China, uh, so people may want to check that out, refresh their memory, although it's not necessary for today's conversation, because today we are going to be talking about Oh, and I should say, I should mention, so Tanner blogs, he, he's a writer, essayist, uh, he blogs at Scholars Stage, uh, there's also a podcast associated with that, also Scholars Stage, and we are going to be discussing a recent essay uh, that he posted there called Culture Wars Are Long Wars. Uh, so first off, Tanner, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so, uh, you know, I think that most people have a kind of a general sense of the culture war. It's kind of all-encompassing, ever-shifting thing. But maybe you could just uh, give us a little bit about the background that provoked provoked this essay because, you know, it's part of a larger discussion, uh, particularly on the right, about... Uh, you know, if I had to, if I had to sum it up, and this is something I think this is—is is this essay part of a series or is it just the latest in the topical thing? Because I, I think you have written some other essays on related topics too. You could maybe say it's loosely part of a series in the sense that it's engaging with a set of um, ideas and a conversation on the right that's going on right now, like you said. It's just the latest entry of mine in this conversation. I think yeah, the so- uh, right now the conservative movement is is pretty well divided on what the conservative politics should should mean for the future. There's yes. a lot of people who say want to kick all the libertarian fusionist elements out, as an example. Um, there's people who are calling for kind of like weird new ideas, you know, Catholic integralism or some sort of the phrase is the new right, what they've been calling themselves, which wants to be super nationalist or otherwise be post-liberal. And so there's this, this huge flurry of ideas going around in conservative circles right now about what, what conservatism should be. And so I've written a series of essays, I'd say, over the last few months that have engaged at different points with this conversation. Um, The most famous one is I wrote an essay called The Problems on the New Right, The Problem of the New Right, and kind of looked at some of the internal contradictions that a lot of these new, you might call them post-liberals, have in their movement. And in many ways, this essay actually is kind of a sidewise swipe at some of these same ideas. Uh, the new right tends to be people who are social conservatives. They look at the traditional three-stool conservative movement, you know, being military hawks, libertarian-esque business interests, capitalists, whatever you want to call them, people who are for free markets and small government, and then social conservatives. And then they say this has been a complete and utter failure. 
these these three things don't belong together and they are destructive towards what social conservatives want to do, which is strengthen churches and communities and family and maybe fight back against wokeism or what have you. And one of the critiques that you see very commonly is that we got into this position we are in right now where the social conservatives seem to have lost the culture war because we've been too attached to libertarian dogmas. Like you can't use the state to enforce your own morality as an example. Um, a lot of these social conservatives say, well, the, the progressives do it all the time. So we should use the state to do the same when we're in power and try to bring about a maybe social conservative renaissance in American life. And so that's kind of some of the background to this essay. Because if you're going to, if you're trying to diagnose what we should do in the future, um, you almost always have a theory of what went wrong till we got to this this point. Right. Conservatives generally agree. We just like we're losing politically. We're losing. We don't have a majority of the country. Every institution in life seems to in American life seems to be going woke. The younger generations are not on our side. And if you're a young person like myself, I'm 29. It, this is even more apparent. But I feel like a lot of the theories that people have for how this moment came about, how it is we lost the culture war, are very unsophisticated or wrong. And so this essay was an attempt to provide a workable, almost general theory of how cultural change happens and the role that concentrated individuals and movements can play in helping make this sort of change happen. Because once you understand that, then you can have a better idea of what's possible in the future and also what really got us into the situation that we're in. Yes. And I would say that one thing that maybe distinguishes uh, your article from a lot of the discussion on these issues is that it actually is about uh, culture more than it is about uh, politics per se. Would you say that that that's accurate. Well, that's absolutely accurate. And that's actually the distinction that I start out the essay with. Uh, I, I, my claim is that conservatives over the last 30 to 40 years haven't really fought a culture war. Instead, they fought a political war over culture. Now, what I mean by that is that conservatives never actually tried to change the culture. They didn't need to. They felt like they had the majority, and in the early times, they did. They had a you know silent majority, a moral majority. They more or less felt like the culture is ours. All we need to do is find a way to kind of contain these cultural dissidents, these crazy liberals and their progressive ideas, get them contained, and we can just preserve the way of life that we have. And thus, what conservatives ended up doing is directing a lot of their intellectual and organizational energy towards kind of like political ends. I think perhaps the very best example of this might be the Federalist Society, when conservatives always are a little bit at a disadvantage because they're, there's just not as many who are really clever or smart. If you, you know, go to graduate school, you look and see they're a minority, but they've been that way for quite a long time. So you have to kind of concentrate your resources. And in the 80s, 
more or less the the conservative movement gets together i'm kind of simplifying here but this is more or less what happened and, and kind of has this discussion is where is it most important what's the center of gravity of the fights for the future what do we need to do to ensure that we are able to to control the future and the answer is well the way that the left who are this kind of minority is able to to influence us is through the courts they're able to use the courts to legislate from the bench and so we need to make sure we control the judiciary we need to make sure that we have an organization which is able to develop a convincing judicial philosophy and develop connections and basically create a judiciary in our favor that's what the federalist society was and there's lots of things that surrounded that the creation of originalism and the propagation of that over the last 30 years it's been very successful in some ways and you even see that today, like, like this is the big thing that, that Trump did. Trump was able to get the Supreme Court on the right side. He was able to, in a way that past three presidents combined, didn't get as many judicial appointees in as, as he was able to. That was the victory. And you could also say maybe we've also used culture war issues as a vote rabble rousing thing. You get people to vote for you on the ground, on cultural grounds. And... So conservatives have been pretty good at this. Even when they don't have national majorities, they're able to control the Senate, get lots of votes in the House, control the judiciary, and come up with um, laws for the state houses. That's not a culture war, though. It's using culture issues, yes. But it's not an actual attempt to change the culture. And so while conservatives were fighting at the political level, a lot of liberal energy, progressive energy, was going towards changing the culture, changing curriculums, doing things that might influence the way the next generation thinks. And now a few generations down the line, we realize the consequences of each side's strategy and choice. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is just my, my, my brief defense of the Federalist Society, since I am a member, uh, is, I mean, it's the sort of the classic thing about, uh, you know, you, where you stand is depends on where you sit. I mean, that's sort of what the Federalist Society should have been doing, because that was sort of their, their role, their portfolio, so to speak. In some sense, I'd almost argue that they would probably in some ways be a good example of what other institutions should could learn from that conservatives could have success. Because it was, I mean, we're, we're not really talking about, we're not talking about democratic um, politics as obviously it was mostly in the, in the courtroom for the most part where the Federalist Society had, had their success, but I'm, I'm sort of that aside, I'm sort of curious what, you know, what this would look like for conservatives, libertarians, fusionists, what have you to, you know, to push back, for instance, in public schools and against sort of the, the wave of intellectuals, what would that actually sort of look like in the real world? Well, let me first say, you know, I didn't come out of this podcast to uh, crap on the Federalist Society. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the thing is, if we were to, like, go back to 1980 and try to convince people not to do the Federalist Society, we don't know what the country would look like. Perhaps it would be worse, right? The things that the Warren Court and et cetera were doing um, presented a real problem. And perhaps in a world without the Federalist Society, I'd be coming out on this podcast and saying, you know, the real problem is we never try to capture the judiciary. <laughs> um, 
we don't get to see what that world would have looked like where we didn't do that. But we do get to see what the world looked like where we where that's where our efforts went. And there's some limitations to that strategy, which I think have become apparent in the last yeah, maybe six or seven years as the Great Awakening has unfolded. And one institution after another, except for the judiciary, has kind of gone on to the the woke side. Um, there's always a trade-off, right? But I mean, that's the other problem too, though, is that I think conservatives just didn't even see the need to fight this fight until quite recently. There was this assumption that the culture was on their side. And it was true for them. That's the other part of my article that is probably necessary to understand. It's not just that, oh, you have to fight in the cultural domain. You have to fight for intellectual ideas. There's a dynamic here. It's a dynamic of uh, generations. And you guys probably picked up on that when you read it. That's one of the maybe different things about my article was the idea that culture wars are kind of fought not for the people who are surrounding you, the people of your generation, they're fought for the people who are still young or who are not yet born, because that's where culture change actually takes place. Well, yeah. And, and this sort of brings to mind, uh, uh, well, for instance, the whole conversation on the right about school choice. Um, traditionally, libertarians and conservatives, I think there's been a, a somewhat of a consensus for this idea of let's let's have more school choice so that parents can have more control over what goes into uh, what goes into the curriculum, and now with the and and obviously there's still there's still a lot of support, particularly on the libertarian side, for that type of thought. And I think that maybe we're not to make this a uh, although I have to admit when when Josiah suggested this was going to be a, a program on the culture wars, oh no, this is going to be about David French and the critical race, critical race theory. But not to not to sort of pivot to that entirely. But you know, now I almost feel like that that's sort of the way conservatives are trying to deal with the challenges in public schools. Is let's let's regulate what the curriculum is going to be. Where in the past, it seems like that maybe there was sort of a shrugging of the shoulders of like, let's not worry about the uh, the public schools so much. Let's just make sure that we have an outlet where we have private schools, we have home schools and so forth. Is, is, am I, am I missing the boat or has there been sort of a cultural shift and, and maybe because of that mindset, conservatives haven't been uh, trying to control what's going into public schools and, and, and have they overcorrected? What I would say to this is that there has been a shift in mindset because I mean, people have realized they've, they've realized the general problem that we have lost the culture. I think it was very shocking this last year to see all these corporations to many people. It wasn't shocking to me because <laughs> I've kind of been expecting this to happen because I'm a bit on the younger side. But if you are a boomer or whatever, it was really shocking to watch you know, Bank of America and the U.S. Army and the CIA and all these organizations basically do things to show their fealty to, to various woke ideals. These are organizations that you would always assume were kind of on your side suddenly aren't. Now, I think it's good for conservatives to think about this problem. And the fact that everyone's upset about school curriculum shows that there 
getting at least serious about the problem, but I feel like it's a very blunt instrument approach they're taking and one that will not actually solve the problem. And I think like one way to look at that is, you know, in my essay, I, I, I say, here are four things I have read that helped inform my view of why culture wars happen the way they do. Like this general theory of culture wars, a theory which applies in different countries, different places, Across American history, all the way back to the you know, 1750s, you can find this pattern. The uh, first piece that I cite is by um, Frederick Hayek, the libertarian luminary. He wrote this essay in 1949 called Socialism and the Intellectuals. And the topic of this essay is, is more or less him trying to figure out how he got into this situation where all the world believes in more or less big government, does not believe in free markets, does not believe in market mechanisms, wants to extend state control into one aspect of life after another. And, you know, if you think about when he's writing this in 1949, it's kind of obvious in some ways how how isolated of, of a position he would have been in. Great Depression just happened. World War II was won by command economies. Labor just swept through Britain. The Republicans have just made their peace with the welfare state. Communism is ascendant and people are in awe at Soviet growth numbers. Everywhere you look, everyone is saying the future is, if it's free market, it's a Keynesian version. And if it's not free market, you can go all, all full communist and lots of people are believing in that. And no one is wanting to be a, a capitalist free market booster. But give it 30 years, 35, 40 years, and suddenly this little band of merry libertarians that Haig has put together, they are controlling or their ideas are the controlling force in the commanding heights of the world economy. Reagan, Thatcher revolutions. And then the 1990s has their, their kind of, you know, what people today disparagingly call neoliberalism stretching its tentacles across the world. And whether or not you approve or disapprove of libertarianism, you have to realize this is a tremendous victory. And so the question is, how did it happen? And I think the answer is, well, you got to go back to this article from 1949, where he more or less lays out, here's what we need to do to change people's minds. Here's how it's going to happen. In my, what he basically says is that culture turns on the secondhand dealer of ideas or intellectuals. He says these are your journalists, your ministers, maybe your doctors. It might be experts, but it's not actual expertise that matters here. It's just a position of respect and interest. People who like ideas for ideas' sake. These people need to be sold on your system. And if they're not sold on your system, you're going to be frustrated. Because what you'll find out is that what the intellectuals of today, what these secondhand dealers of ideas are dealing today is going to be policy in 10 or 15 years time. And he has this question. So why is libertarianism, why is free market thought not able to, to penetrate these people? And he gives a few different answers. He says, number one, we're too technocratic. We're too focused on narrow solutions to problems because we're the responsible people. We're the people in charge. Right, all the business people and stuff are more or less liberals in the traditional sense, um, free market folks. 
but they just want to focus on the very narrow questions of interest rates or whatever, because that's what, you know, wonky people do when you're, when you, when you're in charge. But what secondhand dealers and ideas want is they want broad principles. They want inspiring ideas. They want a vision of utopia that you can aspire to. So that's the first thing he says. You have to find a way to make small L liberalism inspirational, exciting. You have to find a way to not get encased in an orthodoxy because orthodoxy is itself toxic to intellectuals. Intellectuals, like no matter what they believe, no matter what background they come from, a rising generation of intellectuals can't stand the idea of them not being able to come up with new thoughts, new ideas. Uh, and so you have to be able to frame things in a way that allow for the development of new problems and new takes and a new spin. And so these are some of the things that have to be done. And then overall, he kind of says what we basically need to do then is we have to try and fight this level. We have to persuade. We have to create something that is attractive to the rising intellectuals who are coming up. And this is my essential problem with the people fighting over the schools right now is they don't have this vision. They're not offering a version of social conservatism or conservatism or anti-wokeism that is persuasive to the non-converted. For too long, conservatives have not really felt the need to persuade anybody. And this is kind of difficult because conservatives themselves often view themselves as defenders of an inarticulate, non-rationalist tradition. That's the whole point. You're defending traditions which don't have to be and shouldn't be articulated. But we're at the point now where we really are the minority. And that's what I think the, 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 the school folks people don't really understand is that we are the cultural minority. We're the people who need to go out and do the convincing. We're the Christians in early Rome, <laughs> living in the world of the pagans. It's not sufficient to simply batch, um, to, to retreat to the trenches and try to force the schools to teach what you want. Because if you're not able to have a convincing set of visions which convince outside of the schools, well, then you're never going to actually make a difference because the teachers who teach in those schools, even if you ban them from certain words or certain topics, if there's not something that can appeal to those teachers or appeal to the people who are making movies or TikTok videos or who are tweeting long threads that people listen to or who are doing any of the numerous things that might spread and share culture values, ideas, then you're going to lose. All you're doing is delaying your loss or making it more embarrassing, right? Lots of, uh, and I think a good example, you've probably met lots of people who went to Catholic school and came out super anti-Catholic because they felt like these things were being forced on them. We don't want that to be what happens to like the Declaration of Independence and other founding American documents. But I fear that's exactly what might happen if we don't go about this in a more thoughtful way. So you, you've sort of teed up the, the, the point that I was going to pivot to, you know, as I was reading the, the Hayek essay that you, that you cited, <laughs> I was reading it and I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I should view that essay in sort of the light of 2021 in a more hopeful or more pessimistic view in the sense of, we now have so much social media, and I would argue that over the course of my lifetime, the level of discourse has really diminished the quality of the discourse. 
on one hand, you have so much more access to speaking your voice, the democratization of, you know, the, pub, the public discourse and so forth that, you know, certainly earlier in my life wasn't there. From your perspective, if we're trying to have this conversation about the future of society, supporting conservative fusionist type of ideas is the current you know social media culture and you know sort of a an ally to that cause or is it a detriment to the cause in the sense of in some sense maybe we can cut through what would have been the elites before but now there's so much noise out there is it is it does it change sort of Hayek's analysis or you know what 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 do you think about that does the analysis change under the current social media lifestyle i think it's better for us not worse actually um because if you're in 1949 and you're trying to start a cultural insurgency you just have a more difficult time the gatekeepers are much more gatekeepy (laughs) you have lots of roadblocks to your success and reaching out to people Whereas now it is actually, I think, much easier to go about and spread subversive ideas. And that's what we kind of have to realize, that we are the subversives at this point. So, yeah, I think social media helps us more than it hurts us. Here's a question that I have is that, you know, uh, for whatever reason, it seems like uh, conservatives are likely to be a minority among intellectuals, among artists, creative types, journalists, you know, all these, uh, 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 the folks that you were talking about, particularly social conservatives, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the reasons for this are kind of obvious. Uh, if, if, um, if the, you know, one of the appealing things about uh, if one of the appealing things to these groups are that, you know, they like to have like some, something new, you know, and different, uh, you know, that's, it's a little bit of a hard fit perhaps for some social conservative stuff. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I guess the question is, uh, you know, aren't conservatives always just going to be at a inherent disadvantage among those groups? And if so, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, in these sorts of cultural terms, right? Well, you play the long game. And that's actually the main message that I think comes out of my essay is that culture wars are by necessity long wars. And there's a generational component to this. Um, I discuss also in the essay some of the other things that I link to as, as forming my views on this are discussions of sociology about how culture change happens. And what we discover is that most culture change is not about people changing their mind. It's not about people having value shifts. Although that does happen. We know that when people get older, when they get married, they're more likely to become conservative, for example. Sometimes certain world events, like say 9-11, caused significant change in culture across cohorts. But most culture change is not about changing a person like a group of people's ideas from good ideas to bad ideas or from bad ideas to good ideas instead it's a process of replacing people with old ideas with new people who have new ideas and so um like there's a graph i put at the very beginning of the post that demonstrates this though you can see it with many 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 different topics that particular graph is belief in god 
and it shows asks the question like you 100% definitely know there is a god as a general social statistics question um, general social survey question that's been asked to Americans since the 1980s and if you look at the silent generation they have like a two percent decline so people born in the silent generation about 74 percent of them in 1980 believe in god and 72 percent in 2015 still believe in god you go down to the boomers they're about 10 points lower 60 percent and they drop down to you know that's like from 68 to to 64 percent gen x actually increases its belief in god a, a slight bit but they start a little bit lower they're around just a few points lower than boomers then you get to millennials and the millennials start 30 percent lower 30 points lower and then you get to generation z and by the time you get generation z only 30 percent of them believe in god and so if america is becoming more secular it's not because the boomers are losing their faith it's because their children never really took hold of their faith to start out with and you can do this same question with almost anything um, you can do it with attitudes towards say, interracial marriage, and it's the same story. You can do it towards attitudes about almost any social, religious, or moral question. Attitudes about what's important, earning money or um, living a purpose-driven life. And the money thing has been going up and up over the generations go on. This is also true for things like investment. Um Millennials and Zoomers are much less likely to put their money into or to trust the stock market, for example, or to put their money in the stock market. And you see these clear generational divides. And what seems to happen is that people's attitudes towards a very large number of questions, not all, for example, your confidence in government changes a lot in your life, often based off of who's in control of it. But most of these questions, they kind of get set in stone when you are somewhere between the age of 15 and 30 and you more or less keep those same attitudes ideas values and ideals through the rest of your life it's very rare for somebody to have significant changes after say age 30. it happens outliers and so what that means is that people who are dissidents to a culture they don't look like they're succeeding at first because they get very few converts in their own generation. And this is why the conservatives back in the 80s and 90s didn't really feel threatened by the cultural subversion that was going on, you could say, or the cultural changes, if we're going to make it less uh, <laughs> value-laden, because it wasn't happening in their cohort. Their friends weren't being tempted into these woke ideas or into the godlessness or any of these other changes that we've seen. That wasn't happening with the people they knew. It was happening to their children. And they didn't realize this until there, there was enough of their children around and their children had grown up and gained enough institutional power that suddenly they could kind of take control. And that's kind of how the, the tempo of what a culture war is. So you have this gradual phase where you're building ideas, building institutions, and slowly winning over the younger generations to your thought. And then there's a sudden breakthrough. It might be prompted by an event or it might just be prompted by demographic shifts and this isn't just a conservative 
progressive thing. It's an even liberal progressive thing. If you look at like the New York Times, there's been all these articles over the last three years about how the New York Times is having this internal crisis, how the editors are besieged by these young people underneath them who are pressing for kind of woke changes. And they just kind of look at their own institution. They're like, how did we get to this point? And well, this is the answer that these people, these young people, they had always been that way. But you didn't really notice it when they were just the interns. But now that they're the majority of your reporters, you have a revolt on your hands. And the institution is changing very quickly. And that's kind of why you have this woke momentum across institutions in American life. So this is important to understand if we're going to answer your question. This is Sorry, it's such a long answer to your question. <laughs> but... What this means is that if you are a social conservative who believes that a lot of the changes that have been happening in American life recently actually do have a bad effect, then what your job is, is your, your, your first job right now is to start creating the, inst the intellectual frameworks that will explain in a convincing, persuasive way how the problems that we will see and are seeing relate to the problem of the orthodoxy of the moment, which is now woke orthodoxy. And you have to have some confidence that you will then be able to win over generations that are below you. Because this is kind of the answer to your question, I suppose, is that, yeah, if people are always wanting something new, that's hard for a conservative, but we're not really conservatives anymore, are we? The new orthodoxy is a progressive orthodoxy. They're the conservatives in a in a fundamental sense and that they actually have something to conserve now we are the insurgents and so in 15 or 20 years when enough people have seen the problems that come around or that are that come out of i don't know wokeism and when enough of a convincing explanation has been given that isn't just a retreat to whatever reagan said there will be an appetite among the next generation for people who can provide answers to the problems they face. And there's a real possibility that that will be us and not the orthodoxy of the moment. Because that's kind of how it always goes. Uh, that's the problem with all orthodoxies. And eventually they were made for the problems of a different age. And when the age changes, the young rising secondhand dealers and ideas become very frustrated with ways of thinking that don't seem to adequately describe what they are experiencing. And that's the real change. It's not just about, oh, like, conservatism versus progressivism, new versus old. It's more about can these ideologies adequately account for what is going on? Libertarians really struggled, well, fusionists in general, really struggled to provide a compelling account of the Great Recession as an example. And that's one of the reasons they, they suffered why half the left is ready to go socialist. There'll be moments like that in the future to come, and we need to be ready to exploit them. And so, I don't know, you can tell me if you think that's positive or negative, because I really am saying this is a, by necessity, a 20 to 40 year game. But it's a one that's possible if you're really committed to to playing it. So I want to uh, ask a little bit about the role of religion in all of this, because... Uh, you know, you open your essay with, I guess, a chart that shows 
I think it's I think it's uh, specific to like belief in God or confidence in God, something like that, among the different generations to kind of illustrate your point about changes in overall society being driven by you know just changes in in new generations of people. But uh, you know, it, de- it definitely seems that uh, we have had a some significant shifts in religious belief and practice in the United States, particularly among the young. And, you know, while those are not directly related to uh, political, to to politics per se, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to see how the one could impact the other, right? Particularly if we're talking about this social conservatives views in general, uh, specifically, I mean. So, I mean, how much, how, how much, I guess I, the, the question I would have is, you know, how much of this is not even just uh, generally culture war as it is just like, a, uh, I mean, I, I can't say religious war because that means something different, <laughs> um, but you know, like uh, secularization. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's an interesting one because in every other country in the world, development has brought secularization. America was the outlier. We were an outlier for several generations. Well, there's one other uh, exception, but go ahead. Well, the uh, if you were to live, ask people who are kind of like Americanists this question, you know, say someone like Robert Putnam and Bradley Campbell, and, and they, they, they say a lot of the secularization has actually been driven by politics that that religion has been so caught up in these culture fights that as the values changed, um, it discredited religious belief for the people who are young. Um, There might be something to that. There might be just a broader thing going on here where your super secular environments lead to values which are not very that have difficulty sustaining religious belief the people who write about i don't know if you guys are familiar with the term like moral therapeutic deism deism right like that that, i think that's if i was to kind of explain it i would probably say that the uh boomers raise their kids in a sort of that sort of moral, moral framework and that moral framework was not strong enough to, to really hold up real faith in the, in the face of, I don't know, any sort of difficulty or self-sacrifice whatsoever. Now, I do think, though, they're all kind of tied together, right? Values change leads to both religious and political change. And I, I, I suspect that in both the, the maybe Robert Putnam-esque explanation which focuses on political values tainting religion versus this moral therapeutic deism version which kind of again focuses on these kind of secular values tainting religion in either case religion goes down when the broader value set changes around it and i think that's true i think that's kind of what's happened with the religious thing and i'm not very optimistic about changing that i am optimistic about having something of a conservative esque resurgence in the next 30 40 years i don't know if we can have a religious awakening we just did the great awakening was our religious awakening (laughs) 
I, I suspect that we have to find ways to explain stuff that does not rely on that framework. And that that sort of thing can have appeal has been proven. Like, take a figure like Jordan Peterson, who explains the Bible through this kind of weird synthesis of Evo psych and Jungian psychology. But like gets millions of followers from it. Because he's, he's precisely actually what I'm talking about. He's able to come up with a new idiom to kind of stand against the woke verities of our age. And he instantly gets millions of followers. That's kind of our task. I uh, There might be particular problems with Peterson's particular system or his ability to live up to it. But the fact that he was able to succeed like he did shows that... The way is open for people who are able to develop novel ways of critiquing the new woke orthodoxy and that these might get support in time. His problem is that, I mean, number one, he never institutionalized. It's always just him. Um, and then there might have been some other problems too. His own personality, his inability to kind of, you know, walk the talk. His, his vulnerability to apple cider. <laughs> One thing that I will say is I found, you know, a lot of your, uh, you know, your article and essay, it was very enlightening. You know, I, I definitely agree with a lot of it, but I'm also so not you have a, a criticism. Patient. Let's hear it. Well, I'm, a, I'm not a patient man, you know. So whenever I hear people say, uh, you know, maybe there could be like a resurgence in 30, 40 years or, uh, you know, um, things of that nature. I mean, I, I think it's important to work for the long term, but, but, you know, uh, uh, 30, 40 years is a long time, particularly if you're, uh, I'm a little bit older than you are, you know, uh, so I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, uh, it would it it would be nice, uh, I suppose, um, when the good Lord calls me home yeah, at an advanced age to see the like first flowerings of this sort of thing. But um, you know, it, like, nice. is there anything? Uh, but, I mean, I, I'm perhaps a bearer of bad tidings to you um, because I mean that's essentially the thing. If I'm right. And the millennials are more or less set right now. They're they're yes. past that point. Of time, like the oldest one is like forty-two now. The youngest ones are a little bit younger than myself. They're set, right? And they're the largest. They are the largest uh, cohort that we have had in American history. And given fertility rates, they're probably the one largest we'll ever have. They're gonna be in charge. There isn't a way around this that I can think of. It's kind of there. We're just kind of have to accept this reality that. There might be moments where, and I actually suspect this is true too. I, I suspect that we're actually at maybe peak culture war. I think we might be heading for, I think people are exhausted coming out of this pandemic. I think a lot of people don't want to care about politics anymore. They just want to go out and enjoy their life. And this happens also. We have moments of moral crusading, like say the 1910s, which are extremely morally charged crusading types. Gets us through World War One, Red Scare, and then boom. No one cares anymore. Everyone's very cynical. Everyone calms down. And you have a whole decade of more or less the same. All, all the all the advances the progressives made, none of those went away. None of those, except for drinking and temperance, were, were kicked out. But 
everything calms down. I actually suspect we're quite close to one of those moments. There's there's too much fakery involved in progressivism right now. Too many people are faking it. Too many people are exhausted. If we have an economy that supports a boom, I suspect that we'll have a bit more of a, a comfortable 2020s than other people think. Now, if we don't have that boom, then all bets are off. But in terms of fundamentally changing like the millennial thought process, it's kind of too late. And so what we kind of have to do is get the younger Zoomers and like show them how messed up the millennials really are. Oh, as an easy example of this, um, like just take our sex and everything involving sex, the way our culture deals with it, thinks about it, sex positivity, um, hookup culture, what have you. This has clearly been a very bad deal. For a lot of folks. I don't know if you guys follow the uh, Twitter account slash substacker who goes under the pseudonym default friend. Does that ring any bells to you guys? Uh, yeah, she's been a, a guest uh, on this show. Okay, well, so then you kind of have an idea of where I'm going with this then, right? So yes. like the default friend approach is that this has been a disaster. It's, it's a for... bleak wasteland. I... I... Even well, I can see that from my, you know, from my right. That you're you're essentially trying to, you know, condition women to treat sex the way that a lot of the worst men want to treat it. That's essentially what what the 2010s has meant. And so I think it's like if we're going to talk about like new ideas, new approaches, breaking orthodoxies, I don't think it will be that difficult to point out to say somebody who is a little bit on the younger side right now. To point out in, I don't know, five, ten years, look at this entire generation of spinsters on the one side and and familyness, familyless fathers, I mean, on the other, and how terrible this has been. You don't want that. Just as that's not dramatic in the sense of the Great Recession, it's probably more equivalent to something like the opioid crisis and deindustrialization in the heartland where a lot of people are turning against the free market because they've seen up close what that's done, you might be able to, if you can, if you can create a convincing intellectual system that explains how this happened and what a better way of life might be, you might be able to convince the next generation to not follow the millennials' examples. It's not for sure, but I think it's possible. Now, in terms of what can we do now to see those first fruits... Well, again, we're a little bit like the position of the libertarians in the 1950s. We're at the point where we have to be creating these ideas, these explanations, actively trying to sell them to the unconvinced so we can get feedback and you know, have a real almost market system here in figuring out which ideas work, which ones don't, which have traction, how to sell them, but also creating the institutions that will fight this struggle. And you can do other things too. You can like try to change the curricula, sure. You can be creating stuff to try and influence the next generation. That's great. You should. Um, but the fruits probably won't be born for a decade or two. And I, I just don't see a way around it. Um, absent some great national catastrophe, which entirely changes worldviews. And, you know, I mean, there are people, there's the Michael Antons and the Charles Haywood of the world who want to have a Caesar or something come in, a civil war that will force that crisis on us. I consider that very foolish. There's no chance you'll succeed. Um, you might just 
<laughs> there's no chance that, that having that crisis will produce the kind of results you want in the first place. So we kind of have to we have to accept that the long fight's the way it works and steel ourselves to fight that fight and not be too pessimistic that we drop out of it entirely. Our guest today has been Tanner Greer. Tanner, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.